religion, politics, philosophy, and science. You will be challenged. You will question everything you thought you believed. Prepare to be. Welcome back, everybody. It's me again, Thomas, uh, your host. And this week, Eli won't be joining us. He actually was uh, busy. But um, today, I'm going to be talking with a friend of mine, JJ, who uh, I've known for a little bit of time online, mostly, but a really smart guy, uh, one of my favorite people uh, that I know online. Uh, So how you doing, man? Wow, he toned down the praise. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're you're one of my favorite people. I uh, I'm not as smart as I used to think I was. That's for sure. You know, the smartest people usually say that they're not that smart. I think it's it's kind of the Dunning Kruger effect of, like you know that that extreme confidence when you know like literally nothing about a subject, and then as you get more and more informed you just kind of get more and more humble as you realize how much you don't know um so i i tend to find that people who are either really knowledgeable about things or um really skilled at something tend to be pretty humble so you're you're actually kind of contradicting yourself right now well you know i love a paradox (laughs) man i love a good paradox Yeah, those are always fun, especially when you're arguing. <laughs> so this week, um, after last week with uh, with Patrick uh, talking about Flat Earth, um, man, there was so much there that really didn't get talked about. And honestly, a lot of it was kind of reminding me of like my past, um, just kind of being exposed to specific information and um, kind of building my whole worldview around that information. And so after that talk, I I, uh, actually asked for some resources and kind of went digging around a little bit um, uh, because he had sent me a few links of of, uh, sources that he had gotten his information from, um, or at least what he would recommend to me. And uh, literally down the line, um, a lot of it was... um, uh, at least for in, in regards to flat earth stuff, it was uh, like young earth creationism uh, kind of extended out into um, flat earth based on a literal interpretation of the Bible. And that's just that just brought me right back to, you know, my whole upbringing, because that's that's kind of what I was raised in. And I know you kind of have a similar, um, maybe not to the same extent, but you kind of have similar background, right? Uh, I came. I came from a uh, evangelical Christian background, and the science. It wasn't as important that the Bible was be- taken literally, but that all interpretations of causation were ultimately rooted back in God. Right. Like maybe it's fine that you know, evolution happened, but God was guiding that evolution at every step of the way to curate 
the creation that he wanted to have a relationship with. Right. Yeah. I'm, I mean, kind of some of what I was seeing in, in uh, uh, like the flat earth content. Um, I think if I remember right, it was uh, uh, the name of the documentary was something along the lines of celebrate truth. Just funny because I remember like all of, all of these things always like had truth and capital T. Um, it was like the first thing that they would proclaim as truth, and they would found that in you know the Bible as being the ultimate truth. Um, but it 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 was basically you know just that um, it it was always tied back to you know it has to conform with a you know a, a biblical understanding of reality uh, because that was the foundation of truth rather than just simply the evidence alone and if any of the evidence contradicts that then it can't be true it's it's got to be wrong or there's there's you know an agenda behind it to try to you know get rid of god and a lot of references to scientism which is evidently you know the the modern science that we have today which is supposedly you know trying to eliminate the belief in a god, you know, despite the fact that the vast majority of of scientists uh, actually are theistic really, of some form, right? <laughs> uh, various forms, right? And, and that's fine. A lot of times, people who are who like to wear the hat for young Earth creationism, they play, play fast and loose with the term scientism or scientism, and um naturalism and physicalism and all these isms have very very like in the professional philosophical literature they've all got very distinct meanings but yeah a young earth creationist really often will equivocate these terms real fast and hard right especially sciencism and naturalism Right. Which often, like when they're talking about scientism, they're actually harking back to the ideas of logical positivists. Mm -hmm. The idea that things could only be true when they could be demonstrated experimentally. Mm -hmm. Which what? turns out to not be a thing because it was quickly pointed out that that claim that things can only be true, that can only be demonstrated experimentally, you can't demonstrate experimentally, so you can't call that claim a truth claim. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's like you actually watched the same documentary that uh, I just did, and have <laughs> they literally well, talked exactly about that and what little I, I was watching. But it, like they like hinge on it, like it, like that hadn't been left in the dirt in the philosophy of science. Like that is so old hat at this point. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's like. As you kind of delve into, you know, um, those arguments, if you're looking at both sides, you know, scientist responses to um, like young earth creationist claims or I guess flat earth claims could be lumped in with those, although that's not something I'm as familiar with, um, but it seemed to be kind of on the same page with it. Um, I mean, the, every time I would go and explore, you know, the the arguments one side would make an argument, the, the young earth creationist side would make an argument about what science says, and then an actual scientist could come back with, you know, the actual argument because they were almost always misrepresenting the actual science to make it mm -hmm. sound ridiculous. And then they would have mountains of evidence and, 
you know, just all all of this um, information that once you understand it properly, it's not so much a matter of believing it as much as a matter of understanding it. And so, um, and this was actually a phrase that was used in that documentary that uh, I I just used the other day um, as an example. But, you know, when somebody says, you know, if there are still monkeys, or if we if we evolve from monkeys, then why are there still monkeys? Um, if you <sighs> use that phrase, you obviously don't understand the science because that's not what science teaches. Your 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 understanding of the the evolutionary process is it's misinformed, and it's misinformed on purpose with an agenda, which is ironic because that's what they're claiming science does is that it's misrepresenting reality with a with an agenda, but that's literally what they're doing. They're they're misrepresenting how biology works because they have an agenda to discredit it so that they can believe things without evidence. At least that's kind of my take. I mean, I, I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to give them some grace here. <laughs> Go for um, it. I don't think that they believe things without evidence. I think that they have evidences for what they believe because anything that you accept as a support of an argument is an evidence. Right. We like to discriminate and say that only evidences count when they actually reflect reality. Um, but that gets kind of hairy mm-hmm. because we never like can find the bottom of reality. We just have to assert that some evidences are more useful than other evidences. Aha. And and by useful, I mean like we're able to make predictions with, with these evidences about things that will happen in the future. And the accuracy of those predictions gives us more confidence that the evidence is useful. Bingo. But, but th- – when they quote like some terrible like flat earther thing, like they take a picture across a Lake Michigan at some point and show that you can still see the shore. That's evidence. It's just not useful because when you drill down into it, you can't use that to make predictions. When you do your predictions end up being inaccurate and they're not able to be replicated. Right. Well, and that, 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 Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I, I was just going to say, kind of on that point, um, when I when I actually listen to or talk to uh, you know people in the community of science, um, people actual scientists that are doing science, um, I don't think I've ever actually, or at least that I recall, remember them proclaiming something to be true, so much as this is what the evidence supports, and so. It's kind of assumed that it's likely to be true, but there's always an allowance that that could be wrong and there's room for revision. Where on the other side, you know, from creationism, it's always proclaimed truth as, as, and it can't be revised because if you revise it, then you come to a different conclusion. And that's kind of not where they're they have to conclude that the bible is true so they can't change that conclusion so they have to find evidence that supports it i know answers in genesis literally has in their statement of faith that all evidence that doesn't support the um you know the creation 
account in the Bible must be false because we know the Bible to be true. So right. they're they're starting with a conclusion and and working their way, you know, to build evidence to support that. Whereas in science, we look for you know whatever the evidence points to, and you know basically we go through a process of trying to disprove things, and then whatever remains is assumed likely to be true but only so far as it's useful and there's always you know room to revise that conclusion it's just kind of a different um different philosophy and uh like sometimes i wonder to what degree the need for certainty drives the 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 credence of one evidence over another right um, like I think, uh, because would you, a lot of people forget that the decisions, you know, I say all the time and when I argue with people on Facebook, because I love it. Oh my God, I'm so terrible. <laughs> it's kind of addictive sometimes. When I talk with people online, one of the things that I'm constantly saying is that people are not rational. It's true. Rationality isn't a feature of being human as much like there, there are some aspects of being rational, but much more a feature of being human is having feelings mm -hmm. and how confident you are about something you can feel mm -hmm. it is palpable like between you and i how confident are you that volcanoes come from lava floating out of the out of the mantle oh like when you think right, about yeah. that and you think how Quite sure confident. am i Right. But you don't just say like, well, I'm abstractly confident. Like when you think about that, do you feel certain? I mean, I because I, I sure do. Yeah, I don't feel any doubt that that's true. Um, like I, I feel a feeling like I get a warmth in my chest that I am confident that this is the case. There is an associated sense mm -hmm. that comes along with my confidence in this belief. Um, and I think that there is a certain subset of people that I, – I hate to use the word addiction because I think that's such a loaded word <laughs> – but that have an affinity for that feeling and have anxiety at the idea that that feeling might not exist. Yeah, I mean I've personally felt that. Um, it's, easy, it's easy to be afraid that you're wrong. Like those right. are, we associate feelings of shame with that. And I think that that drives people's commitment to ideas. You know, what was, um, something that really shocked me, uh, whenever I started, cause I, I didn't really get a good formal education in science. I, I went to a Christian high school, um, or actually I was homeschooled through high school through a Christian, uh, curriculum. Um, and it was young earth creationism, uh, pretty much the bulk of my science education was done literally while I was working, um, after I was out of school and listening to like science books and stuff on, on audio, uh, or listening to science lectures, you know, for free online. Um, one of the things that really kind of shocked me initially was this embracing of the not knowing or, you know, people, you know, actually getting excited at the idea that they entirely misunderstand reality. Um, that's something that's a lot more common in the science community that um, I think isn't really typical 
you know, in, in normal society, um, this, this idea of embracing, you know, the un, or not knowing things and embracing, um, the idea that you very well could be wrong and that being more exciting than, you know, knowing that you're right, uh, that kind of being exposed to that, uh, and kind of training myself to be okay with not knowing things or okay with being wrong about things. Um, and, and actually seeing it as like an opportunity to learn or to improve where I'm at. Um, that's kind of a game changer, uh, when you can embrace that, because at that point you're not averse to it. You, you actually are kind of excited for the opportunity. I, I, it's, it, at some point in my life, and I cannot tell you when it occurred to me after being wrong so often in my life, (laughs) cause I have been like, I, there was a time, the reason I lost my faith in Christianity is because I was in a fierce Facebook debate. And I, at the time I was an old earth creationist who believed in intelligent design. Mm-hmm. And we, I argued with this guy arguing about evolution, and we spent three days researching evidence and pulling data and showing what the case was for our difference. Like it was a really thorough discussion. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the discussion, I was like, you know, I literally, I, I don't believe in intelligent design anymore. Yeah, I think evolution better explains all of the data that I'm seeing, like way better explains. And then I mean- it occurred to me that if evolution was a better explanation and the Genesis story was a metaphor, like, you know, like right. I realized that there's no place where I can effectively draw a line between miracle and metaphor. Right. Exactly. There, there is, there isn't a test that I can perform that, reliably susses out well this clearly a donkey was clearly talking in this passage this really happened (laughs) it's not a metaphor but when god talks about setting the earth on the pillars on his pillars in first samuel that's a metaphor right which is the first mention of the pillars both of which that your guest from last week was talking about right yeah i mean and to me Taking, you know, the Bible as allegorical, um, to me, is kind of the strongest argument that you can make in its case. Um, The literal interpretation is the one that seems to kind of topple over the quickest. Um, I I think one of my earliest, I don't know if I've told this story before, um, but one of my earliest uh, feelings of, of just kind of being uncomfortable uh, in creationism was, uh, we used to, in my church, we used to go, uh, we had this, this, uh, uh, geologist named John McKay. He would come to our church and take us on fossil digs and kind of give us the science of, uh, you know, creation. And, sure. um, so, you know, he'd kind of give us the, the whole spiel, um, which, I mean, you can pretty much get just by going to the Answers in Genesis website. Um, pretty much along the same lines. And I remember very distinctly, and I was like, you know, a high schooler. I, I wasn't very old. I was still entirely bought in. But I remember this, uh, we, we got back to the church and he, after his like kind of his presentation or, or his talk or whatever, um, there was like a Q&A section uh, where people were asking questions. And I remember this woman that I didn't know who she was, 
I don't know if she was a part of our church. I think that she was visiting. Um, but kind of in the back of the gymnasium, she, she asked about the starlight question. Are, are you familiar with that one? Yes. Uh, so, yeah, the, the idea that, of, that was that was the, the, the attack that Bill Nye tried the hardest to levy against Ken Ham in their debate. Right. Yeah. The idea that, you know, and Ken, or I'm sorry, um, uh, John McKay didn't didn't dispute the distance of stars. Um, he's not quite as far as flat Earth. I mean, he, he does take uh, the size of the universe uh, that's even in creationism that's typically not not disputed. But, um, you know, the idea that if if stars are millions of light years away, and the universe is only 10,000 years old, how can we see light that took millions of years to travel to Earth? And his answer was just like this post hoc rationalization of, well, if we believe that God is all powerful, right? He can do anything. So why couldn't he just create the light between us and the star, creating the illusion of age? Right, that's seems awful ad hoc. <laughs> <laughs> Very, and so I thought, you know, that's that's okay. Bad answer from him. I, other people have to have better answers. I, I literally got into uh, like a, an argument with my mom over that question at some point, and she was sending me, you know, like um, astrophysicists, creationists that had come up with more complex post hoc rationalizations. Effectively, um, they weren't any better because they had really no explanatory power. They they were not scientific. They were scientism. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they were just trying to explain their existing conclusion. Um, and at, at that point, that was kind of my first crack uh, into, you know, realizing, wait a minute, not everything that I believe is actually backed by evidence. It's It's basically an attempt to explain how things are but to arrive at a specific conclusion. And after that, it was just a long process of years of me, you know, looking at all sides of things and just one by one, every argument toppling over. And I mean, that wasn't a quick, easy process. It took literal years for me to kind of get out of, you know, where I started. Um, but yeah, that, that... It's always a process. Yeah, that to me, I think... Um, Having that background, knowing what it's like to have a different belief, um, to some extent, I'm actually kind of grateful for that because I can at least empathize with somebody who is of that mindset because I once was there. Um, and I know that what changed for me was exposing myself to things that I wasn't comfortable with. And you know, being willing to follow evidence wherever it goes and not attaching myself to any particular conclusion, you know, just be being willing to be wrong. Um, and I've found that that is so applicable, not only in, you know, science, but that's, I mean, that, that you can apply to pretty much every aspect of your life. You can expose yourself to specific information to confirm, you know, whatever ideology or whatever belief you know, you're attached to. Um, but at the end of the day, that's really not any better than what I was doing. Um, you know, whenever you listen to, you know, be it science or politics or religion 
or whatever, um, if you're listening to things that you don't agree with that make you uncomfortable and you're listening to those sides challenge each other, usually one side has uh, a side of the picture that the other won't present because it's always easier to argue against like a straw man. Um, and that's that's literally what creationism does to evolution is it straw mans all of the arguments and then knocks those over. When you actually investigate the actual arguments, they're a lot more robust. And I found that to be the case in a lot of different areas. Um, I mean, that just adopting that mindset of always wanting to hear multiple sides of an issue um, has caused me to really change my mind on a lot of things. Um, what do you, what's kind of your experience? Um, well, I, I think back, like, I think that it often happens that we end up falling into ideological ruts. Mm-hmm. Some of them are still better than others. Like they comport with reality better. Mm-hmm. I say that being a potential anti-realist. Um, <laughs> um, some of the uh, like when when I stopped listening to intelligent design, as you know, when I became just thoroughly unconvinced with the arguments, I then began investing my time learning more about evolution. Mm-hmm. And because you only have so much time in the day. Right. And my interest changed, so I was spending my time elsewhere. But I still ended up, you know, you still end up falling into ruts where, you know, you have just by sheer, like, you only have so much time in the day. So I ended up falling into the rut of learning about evolution. And I spent a lot of time reading, and what I would read would be usually like science journalism when I, you know, finally got out of intelligent design. Mm -hmm. I would read articles written by, you know, science popularizers that would explain these concepts. Because the concepts, if you want to go down the rabbit hole and start looking at peer-reviewed journals, most people just really don't appreciate (laughs) how quickly the material in these journals becomes extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, I, I very like, much agree. If you, if you haven't had two years of college statistics, you're going to have a really, really hard time reading about uh, the evolution of different you know, molecular structures. Right. And why that prediction should be expected given this hypothesis. It shouldn't be expected given that one. And here's how the results bear out. And it's a lot of statistics. And by statistics, I mean really difficult. I don't know how to do these statistics because they're <laughs> higher level math. Right. Well, I, I mean, some and, of it's literally PhD level peer reviewed, you know, uh, work. I, I, I have briefly looked at some uh some things that were way over my head and uh you're right it it very quickly can get very very complex and and most people that just unless people are really into the great debate in one way or the other or just really into the subject matter 
they fail to appreciate how complicated it gets. Like when COVID happened, one of my favorite examples of this was when COVID was first getting on the scene and it was late March and April. Um, there was a website, I think it was like the Washington Institute of Health, mm-hmm. was running a website that was giving predictions of different states how quickly they would see case ri- cases rise and what they would expect deaths to be mm-hmm. based upon what day they instituted different mandates. Mm. Like if they close schools on you know April 1st instead of April 4th, then this is what their curve would look like. If they instituted a statewide mass mandate on March 31st instead of April 7th. This is what how their curves would differ. They published their research. Like they published the you know the statistical like the the formula to, to crunch this. Mm-hmm. This formula was 60 some characters long, involved many many sigmas and deltas and function forms like the kind of algebra that you see in differential calculus. Yeah. You know, the kind of like the, 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 the character set like to eat. And this is epidemiology. We're not talking about higher math, right? The, the level of, of experience that goes into the peer reviewed level work on all of these subjects is beyond the layman. And I am very tired of pretending like it's not (laughs) right well i mean uh going back to the dunning kruger effect um you know people with literally no understanding of of how something works have somehow this high degree of confidence that they understand it better than people who have literally devoted their entire lives to understanding these fields and are honestly way more intelligent than i'll ever be um, yeah. I mean, I, if, even if I devoted my life to it, I don't think that I could accomplish, uh, you know, getting through the schooling and actually producing this kind of work. It's, it's really impressive, uh, when you talk to, uh, you know, professionals in various different fields at really just what kind of grasp on their, their particular field they actually have. Um, it very quickly, you, your eyes just kind of glaze over and, and you, you know, they're talking so far above your head that, um, you you feel uh, very intimidated, um, which I think a really good science educator is good at explaining to laymen in ways that um, kind of like you were talking about, you know, listening to people who are science popularizers. That's its own skill, uh, being able to expose people to concepts uh, without getting into necessarily all of the complexities, but being able to break things down into concepts that we can kind of at least better understand, even if not entirely. That's why I like Sean Carroll because he, he does that very well. Mm-hmm. But another thing he does is people he'll, cause he has a Q and a every month and very often people will be like, well, can you explain what all the little symbols in the Schrodinger equation means? Like, how would we do this if we wanted to do it on paper at home? And he, he says very often, it's like, you have to take years and years of math courses to do this work. I can't just sit down and explain this. You have to spend a couple years learning how to do calculus and learning how to do these higher order algebras. It, 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 you can't simplify it. And I think that that is part of like the, the reason different people choose different sources of information is because of how accessible those sources are. It's true.
Um, like I will read the most in informational article that I can read and I will try to, you know, glean as much data as I can. But there comes a point where I, it's, I can't use that article, even if it's accurate. Right, right. Now that's, that's going to be true for everybody. Like, you know, no amount of, exp of, of skill at mathematics is going to help somebody read hieroglyphics. So they're going to be very uninterested in investing time just staring at the symbols. Right. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, you know, um, anybody can go to YouTube and find <laughs> conspiracy theory documentaries that are honestly not not that poorly produced. Um, some of them are actually fairly well done. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, to somebody who doesn't really understand, you know, the science, um, it can look pretty convincing, um, especially if you don't really have the ability to be that critical because it's outside of your own expertise. Right. Um, it's understandable. Right. Like and and the fact that you can digest it means that some people are going to chew and swallow. Right. And I think that's that's for the first I don't know 20 years of my life um that's kind of the best understanding that I had of science was, you know, just kind of what I was fed and it it seemed it made sense. I understood the concepts. Um it wasn't really until I did a lot of work at understanding concepts, uh, which isn't even, you know, the complex mathematical end or any of the, of the, like the peer reviewed work, just understanding the concepts uh, alone. Um, that took a pretty decent amount of investment of my time, you know, literal years, uh, just to kind of get to a point where I could finally understand, you know, conceptually how, what I currently believed could not be accurate. Uh, because it just wasn't logically consistent, and it, um, you know, was it was unfortunately full of a lot of confirmation bias, and there was a lot. There, there was literally an agenda behind it. Um, I don't know. Just, uh, just kind of that exposure um, caused me to change my mind about a lot of things. I think that part of it, though, um, at least learning how to be more skeptical and how to be more critical. Um, I think that's pretty well accessible to most people. Um, would you agree with that or not? Mm, I, I'm disinclined to agree with that, but not like strongly. I mean, I, I've seen enough, I, I, I've seen enough people who weren't necessarily like super intelligent, um, just to learn a different kind of philosophical approach to you know what what you what you accept is true um regular average everyday people learning concepts like you know not to start with a conclusion and try to prove it true but simply being open to evidence and um you know looking at uh not discrediting expertise you know people who you know when you have an entire body of various different scientific uh s studies or or fields converging on um conclusions you know you you if you can accept that and understand you know kind of the wall of of you know expertise behind that and at least defer to the experts on certain things 
you know, not, not to be, you know, just, you know, uh, committing the, the fallacy of, uh, what is it? Um, uh, authority, authority, right. Appeal to authority. Exactly. Um, which is a little different. I, I don't think it's necessarily irrational to appeal to someone who literally is an authority or at least has the understanding of something, uh, when you just don't, uh, at least give that idea a little bit more credit than, um, some half-baked, uh, conspiracy theory, uh, that isn't based on that kind of expertise. Um, I, I think that generally as a society, we have some degree of that accessible to us more than, more than we currently are. I, I think we're, we're kind of rife with superstitious thinking. Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily, um, intrinsic to all of societies. Uh, or at least not to the extent that maybe we've taken it. Mm, it's tough for me to say. And I mean, I ha- especially if you factor in that of developed countries, the United States is like the most scientifically illiterate country um, of them all. And if you look at other, so. right. So if you look at other countries that um, have done a better job with education, um, they're not, I mean, sure, yeah, there's still superstitious thinking there. Um, they're not, you know, this whole society of perfectly logical, rational people, but they're better off than we are, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm arguably biased, but I would say that, like, at least in Western Europe, it does seem that the general populace comports with reality a lot more than the general American, like a, a majority of Americans don't believe in evolution. If I remember correctly, is that actually true? I think so. I, I, I'm only sitting at a computer. Um, (laughs) yeah, it's not like you have all of the knowledge available. (laughs) I'm actually curious about that because I've, uh, like, and when I say it. believe in, oh, it levels, Wikipedia has got me saved. <laughs> um, and, and you have to parse this out there. Remember how I said, like, when I was growing up, it wasn't that evolution was wrong. It just that you believe it was guided by a supreme being. Right. If... According to uh, the 2009 Pew Research poll, so hopefully this has changed some, (laughs) but in the public, 53% of people in that 2009 poll either believed in a young earth creation or they believed that evolution was guided by a supreme being. Okay. So a a slim majority. Mm. So that would mean that the majority then would still accept evolution to some extent, just not... Right, but um, it, it was guided evolution or right. young earth creationism. So it, it kind of depends, like, you can either group it up, like, 64% of people in that poll believed in evolution. About 40% of those people believed that evolution was guided by a supreme being. Okay. Or you could slice up that trio. 53% of people believe a supreme being was involved in the getting life to the point that it is here and 32 percent of people didn't believe that a supreme being had a say in that process 15 percent of the people in this whole group 
it has NA, so they didn't list a response for that segment if you're adding up those numbers. Right. But yeah, only one-third of people in this poll explicitly stated that they didn't think a supreme being had anything to do with it. Mm. Which also tends to correlate with education level. Right, and religiosity. True, yeah. Which also correlates with education level. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, in the same poll, interestingly enough, only 2% of scientists polled believe in young earth creationism. 8% believe in evolution guided by a supreme being. 3% didn't have an answer listed. And 87% believed evolution occurred due to natural processes. So there's a big disconnect between people that have at least any kind of higher education experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't say how it's defining scientists. Does that mean people with a doctorate or people that do work in, uh, I don't know, you know, a field of science. You've heard of the, the, uh, the project Steve, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's more <laughs> scientists that by the name of, or any variant of the name Steve that accept evolution than the total number of, of scientists who don't. I uh, I was working as a server right after I lost my faith, and the the Steve thing was one of the things that I looked at and was like, you know, there's a reason people who spend their time studying this and making useful predictions with this data fall on this side of the camp. And I was like, that's really fascinating. And I just tucked it away as interesting. And I was a server while I was going to college. Right. And I happened to have, like, I was up at the host stand of this restaurant, and a family came in, and one of the guys had a Project Steve t-shirt on. And I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I just read about that. That's incredible. And he was like, yeah, I'm right back here. And he was one of the names on the, oh. the original thing. It was so wild. <laughs> so, funny. like, I fangirled over something that I cannot describe as nerdy. <laughs> Even I, more nerdy than <laughs> it was so... So one of the common um, things or retorts that I've heard, you know, about the education level correlating with religiosity or, or, or you know, the acceptance of, of evolution is that the the education itself is what um, brainwashes people against God is kind of the way that I've heard it um, well, and, phrased. And, and, like, I, I, I would want to hesitate and, and, and give these people grace and, and not use the term, like some of them use the term brainwash, but like the serious, if you talk to somebody who's seriously earnest about their beliefs in young earth creationism, but not like, I don't know, it's like, not like in a cult sense, just like this is, you know, the, from all the stuff that they've read, they mm-hmm. want to know the truth. They've only right. collected data. Mm-hmm. They won't call it brainwashing. They'll just say that. Like education, when people are studying this, this educational, these educational materials get priority because of the way that, you know, the textbooks have developed. Right. Like they'll, they'll be very couched and polite. Some of them won't. <coughs> Look <Right>. at it. <coughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've had it expressed various different ways, but kind of the underlying, and at least for myself, the underlying thought there was that, you know, the, the education itself is biased, um, you know, towards, towards natural, uh, or, you know, uh, secular, right. Or even anti 
uh, theist uh, mentality, you know, the, with the intention of, of trying to prove there is no God uh, or come up with an alternative explanation. Um, like you're pro- you are prohibited from using <laughs> a supernatural methodology as part of your explanation. Right. Which... Which... <laughs> we were about to say the same thing. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, you go ahead. It'll be fine. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You can only evaluate nature. Right. If something exists outside of nature, by definition, it can't be observed or examined because it doesn't exist within nature, which is the only thing that we can study. So, I mean, whether or not you, you know, you subscribe to like an ideological naturalism, methodological naturalism is really the only way that you can, that science can function. Uh, because if you if you accept anything beyond that, you're literally appealing to a magical explanation for things. Yeah, it, it just makes things trivial. Like I listened to a really good uh, talk between a, a theist, Luke Barnes, who mm-hmm. is one of like you can find the guy like in the philosophy circles on Facebook. He's part of the big great debate, mm-hmm. and he is one of the most effective advocates for the idea of fine-tuning, like, you know, the fine-tuning argument. Right. Like, he he builds a really strong case. It would If I said that he didn't build a really strong case, I would be willfully denying the truth. Like, the man makes a strong argument for the idea of fine-tuning. Mm-hmm. And he was in a debate with a guy named Alex, Dr. Alex Malpass. I think they're both doctors. Um, who is a philosopher, and he... Ten, he is an atheist and tends to defend atheist arguments. And they were talking about the idea of using God as part of an explanation for something. And Alex Malpass gave the example of flipping a coin. If you allowed, let's say we were to, to predict that a coin was going to be heads. And we flipped the coin and it ended up heads. Uh, let's say it's a fair coin, you know, no weird assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um Assuming naturalism is true, the odds of that coin flip being heads is not 0.5. One, you know, right, 50%. Now, if God was involved, though, the fine-tuning argument would make the case that it, by involving God, it's more likely that the result you, you know, that God would want would happen. And Alex pointed out that as soon as you involve a supernatural process that can dictate the result, which is what a you know an omnipresent God would be, the the odds that it happens become one. Like there's no there's no room for failure, so it becomes ad hoc, right. and that's the problem with using supernatural ex- like even if supernatural explanations are things that happen in our universe. We can't use them to make predictions because we can never show when they are ad hoc and when right. we we actually had a chance to differentiate that between a natural explanation that might be the case. Well, and I, I think you, with the fine-tuning argument, it's making the assumption that the conclusion or the result was intended when the result can just be entirely um, – you know, a consequence of the process before it, and it really couldn't have gone any other way. That's just how it went because of the circumstances. Uh, but- right. If you if you remove the idea that God intended 
to see the universe the way that the universe is, then there's no way to tell it's any more likely than naturalism. Right. Sorry for interrupting. I no, 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 go ahead. <laughs> I interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah, you continue. Um, so you're right when you're talking about methodological naturalism. Like, it's the only tool that we can use to create predictable standards. And, and that's the point of science in a lot of ways. The goal of science is to do science. And doing science means studying the world around you and seeing if the world around you behaves in the way that you think it behaves. Right. That requires prediction, and you can't make predictions and in introduce the potential for a supernatural entity. Right. It's understanding like the mechanics behind the process, you know, what what's causing things to happen the way that they are. And when you understand that process, you can make predictions quite accurately. You know, if you if you understand uh, the mechanics behind a car, um, you know, you can predict what will happen at certain RPMs. Um, if you don't understand that and you're making like post hoc rationalizations, then uh, I mean, all bets are off. <laughs> you can pretty much you can apply that to anything and it has no explanatory power whatsoever. Um, now, the kicker is this never makes science right. Right. You can never you can never know that something is true just because you successfully predicted it. You, you all you really know is whether that model is useful, and well, you only know that it seems useful. <laughs> That's true. That's you can true. never actually say that it is useful. A great example is you know when uh, um, Kepler came up with his you know laws of motion mm -hmm. and. Uh, Ptolemy came up with the or uh, what's the guy's name starts with a C Copernicus right came up with the idea of a heliocentric solar system. It's not that the previous idea that existed was without merit. Like you could actually predict with the the geocentric solar system. Oh, what's the guy's name that cut his nose off and got it replaced with a nose of gold? Oh, huge drunk. I'm Kepler blank. went and studied with him. It starts <laughs> with a T. Tol uh, no. Oh, man. It's going to come to me later. I'm going to be like, I should know this because this is the stuff that I'm into. But his geocentric solar system, scientists were using it to make successful predictions. Mm -hmm. it, it did have some use. And then when that got replaced by the Copernican idea... The Copernican idea struggled because they didn't know that planets were ellipses. Right. The plan planetary orbits were ellipses. And so some of their predictions were off. And that's one of the reasons it took so long for the Copernican revolution to actually set in. It's because they had to solve some of those problems. Right. And then that was better replaced by Isaac Newton's laws, uh, classical gravity, you right. know, classical Newtonian mechanics. Mm -hmm. But even that would make many predictions and it made way more predictions than the old models. And those predictions turned out to be way more reliable. Like we kept getting good answers, right? But not always, which is why we came up with the idea of Vulcan. Did I miss a reference? <laughs> no Vulcan. So the procession of Mercury 
was never where it was expected to be based upon Newtonian mechanics. Uh-huh. Mercury didn't end up in the Perilon where it was supposed to in space. It was always in the wrong spot. So astronomers hypothesized that there was a planet in between Mercury and Venus, and they named that planet Vulcan. That's where the original name Vulcan was from. Oh, okay. And they looked and looked for this planet and never found it. But that wasn't the end of the story. They just kind of gave up and did other things. It wasn't explained until general relativity came along. Right. And general relativity really explained it. General relativity has been the second most accurate uh, scientific theory ever. Right. The first being, I think it was, it's quantum chronodynamics. Mm-hmm. Or, or it might be quantum QED. <laughs> I forget, because I'm not a specialist. Right. But like both of these like have like confidences like well into six sigma which is like 99.9997% reliable right. and just stupid and that's how we go about ultimately putting our chips in that basket versus another basket well and i think it's worth noting too that many of those scientists um you know from galileo to um i mean just one after another, um, many times they got to kind of the end of their knowledge of, of their ability to explain the process. And many of them attributed the rest to God. You know, yeah. um, you can't mathematically explain, you know, how the uh, planets are in orbit. So clearly God is orchestrating that. But then later somebody comes along and explains that. And, but they can only get so far. And the rest right. of it has to be, you know, God, because it's not explainable. But then somebody else comes along and explains that. And it's just this constant process of being able to understand the mechanics of how the universe works. And I think once you start to recognize that pattern of, you know, attributing God to whatever the unexplainable is, the unexplainable increasingly becomes smaller and smaller as people progress in their ability to understand um, so, I mean, I think that's, that's at least worth noting. It, it makes me think like, uh, one of the most important philosophers of, uh, in Western Europe was Immanuel Kant. And in his, he wrote a text called the critique of judgment. Let me see if I can find the exact quote. He said, there will never be a Newton of the blade of grass because human science will never be able to explain how a living being can originate from inanimate matter. And uh, that just that harkens back to the idea like Newton could explain the planets where like it wasn't explained beforehand. And right. that used to be a, a supernatural explanation. And then Immanuel Kant was like, well, Newton explained the planets, but nobody's going to explain a blade of grass. Right. And that was fine until 70 years later when Charles Darwin came along. Right. And it seems like one of the things that I just really that makes me a naturalist is the idea that like every time we go looking for an answer, it's never supernatural. And maybe that's because the method we're using is always going to look for natural answers. But if there is a supernatural answer, 
I don't understand. Like, and then, and and that supernatural answer has an invested interest in making us aware that it wants a relationship with us. That never manifests itself, and one would think that a supernatural creator of a universe that did so with intent could bridge that gap. Right. I kind of want to talk about motive. This, um, yeah. Because for myself, my motive um, for understanding science better was actually not what I'm often told that it was, which is that I was trying to prove that there is no God, um, because that absolutely was not my personal intent um, in seeking. I was genuinely seeking for the truth, or at least, you know, seeking to not believe something that was false. Um, what I notice from at least pretty much every, every, uh, educator in my background from, uh, you know, the, the young earth creationist, uh, world was, it was, it, there was an agenda and it was clearly stated, uh, that there's, you know, obviously a bias that they believe in, uh, a theistic explanation for everything. They took it to something of an extreme, you know, in, in their literal interpretation of, of the Bible. Um, but they also would attribute the same agenda to the other side of that argument and say that they had the opposite agenda, which was to disprove God. And as of yet, I don't think I've actually met a legitimate scientist whose motivation was to disprove God. In fact, I've the vast bulk of people in you know whatever scientific field they're in, be it medical or or what have you, um, you know biology or, or whatever kind of science that they're in, um, most of them actually do believe in God. They just don't they don't attribute it the same way. You know they look at science as the natural process of understanding, uh, you know the mechanics of of how things work, and God's kind of a separate thing, um, but. I don't see that motive. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if Richard Dawkins wouldn't be tickled pink with this with the uh, task. But <laughs> like even, most most people he, that even yeah. he says that he you know he's as far out as you can possibly be rationally in you know not believing in a god. But he, he even he won't say that you know that he absolutely believes there could not you know possibly ever be a god um, because that's just not within the realms of science to assess. Yeah, I I, I don't you know I me mean, I when people ask me I tell them I'm an atheist but I'm better described as an ichthyist. I just don't think you can actually talk about God. Um, but let's, we can talk about that another time because I am like, I want to explore the, the motive that right. you, that, that you mentioned. Like I was thinking about, uh, that, that motive Ham. seems to kind of, you know, make a pattern through at least from what I'm aware of most conspiracy theories. There's always 
that motive behind, you know, whatever a consensus is or whatever the narrative is? There is, it's very dichotomous. There's, there's a very, very us and them context that we see in, with conspiracies. Like, people that don't believe that the coronavirus pandemic is happening, almost to a man, will use the term scamdemic. Right, or plandemic, one of the two. Right. As an insinuation that it's not just that people think that there's a pandemic when it's just actually a really bad flu season or whatever. Like, there is an intent to deceive them. They are under threat. Right. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that would accomplish. I'm, I'm actually kind of confused at that. I think that that's, I think that that's actually a, a brute fact. Like, I think that that's something that, like, the sense of foreboding that they have that there is an, an, an other out there, like a something that is clearly not part of their tribe, their community, that has a vested interest in attacking their community, I think that that is more primal than rational. And I think that they rationalize that primal experience after the fact. Mm. I think that they feel like there are people out to get them, and then... They take that feeling and build a story around it so that they have words to explain why they have the feeling. Right, because like what I constantly see on Facebook is they're trying to take away your freedom. They're acclimating you to uh, oppression or um, dominion or you know any of these very sorts sort of things. Uh, the, the common theme of of taking away your liberty is is kind of the the idea there. Like, I don't understand. I mean, it's hard to ex- to understand this. Like, now, you know, when... Because when, if you ask them to grapple with that, what are you asking them to do? Well, you're asking them to define liberty. I had a civics teacher in high school that challenged me to define liberty. Because we were talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. And he challenged me to define liberty without talking about life or the pursuit of happiness. Um, and it turns out that that's very difficult. It's very difficult to explain to people what liberty is. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult for them to understand. So when you ask them, like, what is it? If they're taking away your liberties, what are your liberties? And they'll talk about the ability to live their life as they see fit. Freedom, essentially. Right. And when you ask, like, well, how free should you be? Then they start realizing, like... very quickly, you cannot escape the fact that you have to have a state if you want to have a community. 
Like it doesn't matter what kind of community you have, you will come up with systems and codes in that community to function. Right. Right. Because someone will always try to trample on your freedom. So even even get granting best intentions, people still have to interact. Right. And interactions take norms. I mean, th- this isn't a bad example. Um because people are are you know vehemently pushing back against um you know like the mask mandates and uh social distancing recommendations and um especially against uh like curfews um things of that that nature which do take away um you know your freedom to just kind of do whatever you want to um in my state uh my my governor is a republican um, and kind of the way that he described what he's doing, because he has, um, actually we're under a, uh, 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 the word I just used, I'm sorry, it's late. <laughs> um, we're under a curfew right <laughs> yes. now. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, businesses can't be open after 10, you can't be out at the bars, you know, at 10, 11 o'clock at night. Um, our Republican governor you know, has various different measures in effect right now to try to curb the the spike of COVID. Um, and the way that he explained it was, you know, we all kind of have this basic understanding of, of you know, we want to maximize freedom, but your freedom basically ends at the point that your actions harm other people. And that's a very basic concept that we all kind of fundamentally understand is that, you know, you... you uh, and he didn't phrase this, but I've heard it said numerous times um, that, you know, you have the right to swing your arm, but that right ends at the tip of my nose because that's where that action starts to harm me. And, you know, he, he understands that very similarly in that, you know, going around without a mask, uh, up close with people in public, um, you know, interacting in large groups effectively will harm more people more people will get sick and more people will die and hospitals will become overwhelmed and will, you know, not be suited to treat people. So he understands that concept and his own party has gone through various efforts to impeach him. Mm -hmm. Um, His uh, uh, medical advisor, um, Dr. Amy Acton, uh, during one of the transitions where they were easing up on restrictions and going into the next phase, uh, she resigned um, because she saw that as a good transitionary period. Uh, but part of the reason that she designed was because of the vast, uh, the massive amount of death threats that she kept getting. Um, I mean, people are literally uh, threatening people's lives because they can't go out without a mask on or, you know, run a business uh, the way they normally would. Um, and it seems that they're using that same narrative of they're trying to, you know, there's a big conspiracy. They're trying to take away something from us that's, you know, intrinsically something that we have a right to. And that same mentality, it's, it's, it's like you're projecting what you're doing onto other people. You're, you're taking your conclusion, trying to rationalize it, and then projecting that same mentality onto the other side. Um, and they're saying that, you know, it's, it's not really a pandemic. They just, they want power and they're trying to rationalize it through a pandemic. Um, it, to me, it's kind of telling of 
a person's own motives whenever they're accusing somebody else's motives when demonstrably that doesn't seem to be the case. People will assume... That's that's one of the properties of empathy that it makes me dislike empathy. Right. Em- empathy gets a lot of a lot of good uh, good press, <laughs> but pe- people will empathize their experiences onto other people just as easily they'll that as empathizing other people's experiences onto them. Would, it is would, a two way street. Would it be fair to kind of make the distinction uh, between empathy and projection? Um, I don't think so, because I think that it's only a distinction in direction. Right. And I think I think that what is happening is the same experience, except the direction is different. And I think that we would get a lot more traction. I, I fall into the camp, like with psychologist Paul Bloom from Yale, where empathy is not a very useful tool. Uh, compassion is a much more useful tool. Right. Um, because I think that calling empathy only the good thing and then saying projections, the bad thing misses the idea that people are having an experience where they are sharing their experience with the mind. It's, it's a theory of mind act as far as I see it. Mere neurons. Um, and I think that that is it. People are empathizing. And I think that they Just do the that in both direction. directions. Right. Sort of like the, uh, like I had a friend who, uh, um, his, uh, girlfriend was always checking out other guys. And so anytime, you know, an attractive girl walked by, she assumed and got upset that he was checking them out because <laughs> that's right. what she was doing. Um, kind, of, kind of that same, kind of the same process. It's, and it's, we, the reason I want to make, to, to give it, it's kind of like that neutral view that I am, or you know that both good and bad advantages and disadvantages of empathy thing, mm-hmm. is because when we do that, we keep in mind that it is a very human thing to do, right? Um, and it is human for people to look like it is human for people if they believe that. People are interested in having power over other people. Uh And they see people doing things that take away their power. It is very human to ascribe that intent upon the data. Uh I mean, the majority of people that I know who you know, are, are adhering to all of the, you know, the recommendations from the CDC and WHO. Um, the majority of those people are doing so kind of out of a motivation of trying to take care of the people that are around them. Um, I know for myself, I, I'm honestly, and I maybe should be more worried about myself, but I tend to kind of go through life not worrying too much about me, but worrying more about what I could do to somebody else by accident. Um, you know, kind of an example might be if I'm driving and I'm sleepy, you know, uh, the fact that I could fall asleep and die. Yeah, that's a deterrent. Um, the (laughs) fact that I could fall asleep and kill somebody is what causes me to pull over and take a nap. Um, because that terrifies me. 
Um, so, and I, the motivation there of people who are making those recommendations seems to be just that, that they're worried about society. They're trying to do their best to, to manage a crisis, uh, not, you know, not that of trying to seize power. And I, I have not, you know, I, I've heard a lot of the conspiracy theories, but I've just not seen good, hard, tangible evidence, especially knowing people in the medical field who are taking it very seriously. Um, that's just not their motive. I mean, no, the people like epidemiologists aren't going to be seizing power, but epidemiologists who study this for decades, you know, years, decades have experimental experience that gives them predictable results are agreeing with the people in power. Right now, like the amount of assumptions that you have to take on board, whatever they may be, like maybe you assume that the government is persuading them you know, with either positive or negative reinforcement, if they tow the government's line and they should produce all this data what a, that's one actually a, fake. One I've heard commonly is that, you know, the hospitals get paid so much more money for positive COVID results um, that they're incentivizing them financially. Um, there is a Medicaid payment for COVID. I know. Like, it, it is true that hospitals get money for COVID patients. Right. It is not true that hospitals are making a profit because of the pandemic is happening. Those are right. two different claims. Right. And you would have to defend the latter claim if you were to argue that it, uh, this was evidence for a grand conspiracy. Well, and it doesn't account for the extra expenses and resources that go into right. treating people. Just because Which, they're getting top-line revenue because of a government agreement, because it's a pandemic and they need finances to do their job, does not mean that they are turning a profit. That's right. what has to be demonstrated. Which, I mean, they are, but they already were. <laughs> I mean, that hasn't necessarily changed. Um, I from people I've talked to, a lot of hospitals are not turning a profit because the vast majority of their profits, or at least they weren't at the beginning of the pandemic, oh. because the vast because the vast majority of their profits came from, um, you know, like same day surgery stuff and stuff that like got canceled, like elective like, surgeries and right. Uh, all not. kinds like going into regular doctor's appointments and getting your x-rays and drawing blood and doing labs and all the normal day to day business of hop hospitals get hit as hard as everything else in the economy. Right. I've, hospitals were not turning a profit and they were laying people off and they are still laying people off in some of the extraneous stuff. Like my personal primary care physician is constantly concerned that their level of care at, and it's just a normal, you know, doctor's office. That's part of a big hospital network mm -hmm. that their level of care is going to start seeing layoffs because Right. The hospital network is bleeding money overall. Um, you know, my, my day job, I'm a, uh, uh, like a fiber internet guy for the phone company. I install service for people. A um, couple of weeks ago, I, I got a ticket downtown in like a high-rise building. Um, so drive down there, find the parkings later in the day. Go up, and I'm in an abbard by the view, but this guy is busy. He's on, like, a Zoom call, which is, like, the entire world right now. Um, yeah. And, you know, he's got – he's 
one of the few customers that's actually following all of our recommendations before we show up is, you know, he's got the mask and everything, keeping distance. Uh, some people respect that. Some people just straight up don't. You have to kind of insist. Um, but I, I don't have any idea what this guy does for a living. He's just wealthy. He's He's got some money. He lives in a high rise and he seems important. He's a little older. <laughs> um, Must be rough. Yeah. Um, he seems, you know, kind of in the middle of something. So he's like, yeah, the internet box in in there is, is, uh, acting up and I just need, uh, need you to swap it out. Okay, cool. Easy fix. Um, he's like working off of his, uh, hotspot on his phone to be on a zoom call and he's got his computer up and the speakers are fairly loud and he's standing there, um, talking, not sitting, he's standing, uh, talking in like a zoom meeting. So I go off in the bedroom and I'm working on the box in the other room and I'm really not paying attention. I'm just doing my job and kind of looking out the window and taking, uh, taking in the view or whatnot. But, um, I, I overhear bits of the conversation in the other room. And from what I gathered, I don't know if he's, if he was like administrative, uh, with a hospital or if he's actually a doctor or what, I didn't quite catch what his role was, but I did kind of get the context of the conversation where they're basically, they were struggling to cope with the influx of patients and having resources. I mean, I don't know if you know it, but my county right now is the worst county in my state. Um, so we're kind of getting, you know, the, the worst of it right now uh, in, in Ohio where I live. Um, but like just hearing kind of the, the tension in the conversation, them just kind of frantically trying to figure out different avenues to solve, you know, this problem and put out that fire. And at one point, and I don't know why this really stood out to me, but, um, it got kind of quiet and, a woman on the other side of the call said, man, this is really a mess. And just oh. hearing hearing people in the field tackling and dealing directly with the consequences of numbers spiking and those people, you know, being the, the medical experts are the ones informing the governor into his decisions. And that's what he's basing his decisions on is, is their expert opinions, uh, what they need to be able to do their jobs. Um, hearing that in the real world, you know, not, not just hearing Facebook rhetoric that just kind of made it more real. Um, I mean, I, I've personally gotten sick with what was probably COVID back in January, I got really sick and ended up in the emergency room. So I've kind of firsthand experienced something. Uh, I, I wasn't tested because it was January and they weren't January, testing. Yeah. So, I mean, I was literally sick for months, I, you know, having two or three severe asthma attacks every single day for months. Um, and I'm still not quite right. So I've kind of personally experienced physically, if it wasn't COVID, it was something significant. Um, but even that wasn't the same as just hearing people actually dealing with the numbers. Um, I, I don't know how you can accuse all of the medical industry throughout the entire world of being in on a hoax or a conspiracy uh, for whatever reason you want to say that it is. Um, I mean, if if you interact at all with these people, it's at least in the cities where 
you know, stuff is probably a lot worse than it is in rural areas. That's, um, that's what shocks me. Yeah. Like, it's everybody, like, millions and millions and millions and billions and it's millions and millions of these smartest specialized people regarding the subject are in complete concert that there's a deadly pandemic going on. Why they think that if there wasn't already a conspiracy in place that, I mean, if there was a conspiracy in place and these people wanted to take away the freedoms of the average, generally speaking, you know, middle-class white dude, they would have done it already. Right. The, it, what shocks me is is how how the average American conspiracist thinks they are competitive. <laughs> right. I, I mean, just just to to have, and I mean, I, I I know I'll be putting down people by saying this, but to have that kind of arrogance to think that your YouTube understanding of something is, is on par with someone who, you know, with a doctorate in, you know, literally what they've invested their whole life into is absurd. And that's it, it, just kind it, of the American culture right now. Well, and it, there's, I, I think we should break off because I think maybe it'd be cool to pick this up and talk about, the anti-science like just the idea like the resistance to the idea of scientific authority like the authority of expertise right because i think like we're we're running up against well i i have kid that i have to get to bed <laughs> I but, hear but, but and i think that that it, it's a can of worms that needs to be analyzed i agree like that because I, I think that there is a wildly strong correlation between people that think that there is a conspiracy of people in authority to control them and people that think that scientists can't be trusted. Right. I, I agree. I think that's a, that would actually be a great topic uh, to just kind of delve back into in, a, in another discussion. This um, has been really cool. I've had a really good good time just kind of like hashing out these ideas with you. Yeah, that's kind of what I I intended for the show. I just wanted to be able to cuz I was having some of these conversations online uh with people and I thought it would just be nice to have a, a kind of an in-person conversation and record it and get other people's input, you know, people can listen and and join in the conversation. Um but yeah, this has been really fun. Uh, definitely uh, want to pick back up. Um, man, thanks for thanks for spending time with me today. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Thanks. I know it, thanks for I, having me. Yeah, I, I know you dedicated oh, some of your. We evening. need to do a full disclosure, I believe. Sure, go um, ahead. I am a Patreon of your channel. Hey, yes, you are. Um, that is unrelated to me being on here. Like we are friends outside of me being a Patreon too. And we wanted to talk about this kind of stuff. And so Thomas invited me on, but I think that a disclosure statement is appropriate. Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate your membership. It, uh, it contributes, although I've not actually 
deposited any Patreon checks or anything. <laughs> Just kind of <laughs> in the, it's not been up for very long. The show's too And by new. saying that, I also want to, you know, hey, if you want to support the show, you can do so on Patreon. Yeah, yeah, go to our website at analyzepodcast.com. Uh, you can either click on the Becoming Patreon to get exclusive content, uh, as well as extended shows, which we've not done very many of, but we're sure to, uh, because we've only got so much hosting time with our our podcast hosts. So uh, those are sure to come as some of the more difficult conversations happen. Um, and uh, if you want to be a guest from the same analyzepodcast.com website, you can click on the uh, Become a Guest link and fill out the form. Uh, I've had a number of, of people fill out the form and uh Sounds like we may have some pretty interesting people coming on here in the uh, upcoming future. Uh, but yeah, thanks, thanks everybody for uh, spending an hour and a half of your day with us. Um, I don't know uh, beyond the next episode what we're going to be talking about, but it sounds like next time we're going to be talking about uh, anti-intellectualism and anti-science in America. That'll be super fun. Looking forward to it. Awesome. You guys enjoy the rest of your week. See you, man. Yep. Bye.